0: International programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us for this program focusing on the book culture, languages, and arts of indigenous peoples. World Canvas is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. This program is being recorded for a statewide television and radio distribution over UITV and KRUI 89.7. It will also be available, along with all programs in this series, as a free podcast on iTunes. I'd like to thank our production partners for their support of World Canvas, UITV, the Pentacrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. The stories of our lives and our histories are carried from one generation to the next through language. Whether spoken, signed, or written, languages are complex systems of communication that evolve over time and are rich with cultural and social meaning. As the centuries go by, some of the keys to understanding these languages and the cultures they reflect may be lost. On today's program, we'll investigate the painstaking work of uncovering and interpreting age-old documents and written records, and we'll try to get a fuller picture of the people who produced them. I've invited two faculty members from the University of Iowa to help us explore the topic through the Native American experience, and they're here with me on stage. Just next to me is Philip Round, Professor of English here at the University of Iowa, former Academic Coordinator of the American Indian and Native Studies Program, and author of the recent book, Removable Type, Histories of the Book in Indian Country, 1663 to 1880 and next to him is Jackie Thompson Rand, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of History with a joint appointment in American Indian and Native Studies, and I want to thank you both for being here. Um, I think I'm going to start with you Philip. I'd like to ask you to to give us an introduction to the, the history of the written word really among the uh, Native American tribes. Well,
1: I think I can do that in a minute or two. The uh, impetus for my interest in this came from uh, Actually, I, I, uh, a famous Supreme Court decision, I think it was Worcester versus Georgia back in the 1830s. And the, uh, the uh, justice who wrote a, a concurring opinion with Chief Justice Marshall, a guy named McLean, uh, as he was describing why he believed Native people needed special protections, he said, For these are an unlettered people. And in his uh, opinion, he was talking about probably the most lettered Indian nation of the time, the Cherokee Nation. So that didn't seem right to me. But every scholar I turned to said, well, you're not going to find anything uh, if you go looking for the written archive of early Native uh, texts, you know, in the 18th and and 19th centuries. Luckily I had a a fellowship at the Newberry Library in Chicago and I did go looking and sure enough I did find enough to make a whole book history of uh, many many different tribal communities across the united states who encountered alphabetic literacy usually through missionaries uh and then usually adapted that alphabet form of their language to their own needs so another part of what we're trying to do when we're recovering these texts is to get people to think a little bit more from the native community's point of view this isn't always an imposition on native people though many native people initially rejected alphabetic literacy as part of a larger colonial uh, attack on their cultures, um, a lot of uh, Native communities began to adopt different forms of this kind of literacy along with their traditional practices in order to appear uh, in court or to uh, tell their stories in the in the newspapers of the time. I happened to be in New Jersey uh, at Rutgers uh, two weeks ago and I gave a talk similar to this about um, Six Nations, Iroquois, Uh, manuscript practices for these same purposes and in the audience was the uh, principal chief of the uh, lenni Lenape Nation, uh, Nanakok Nation out there in New Jersey and he came up to me afterwards and says, you know, that was great to hear because it's true at first we were really, really wary of that technique of writing and yet nowadays we're thankful that we adopted it because it's been really essential to maintaining these people have been in New Jersey for thousands of years and they're still there He said to me that part of the reason was when they made that uh, um, adaptation to also using alphabetic literacy along with other practices uh, in their community. So
0: how far does this go back? How far do the written records
1: go? Well, um, you can find, of course, one of the other things that's uh, a little bit different and we'll talk a little bit about a couple of different ways of writing in um, Indian Country I've been talking about the alphabetic forms, and that's the ones that are based on the Roman alphabet that many of us who write in English write in. Uh, But there are a lot of um, symbol systems that were adapted to something like alphabets early on. For example, in the the 17th century, amongst the Mi'kmaq people, a French cleric came there. Um, These people were using a kind of, almost like cuneiform, if you've ever seen cuneiform, uh, on birch bark, and he kind of modified that into an alphabet. And those kinds of alphabets we call syllabaries because they represent sounds rather than letters, right? So um, there are quite a few of those. So I can go back to the 17th century. But the first American Indian um, author uh, in English uh, is Samson Ockham, a Mohegan minister who published in 1772 an execution sermon for a fellow Native American uh, convicted of murder. Uh, and that was a best-selling book that went through 13 editions, and it's really the first uh, f- famous author in, in Indian country uh, in North America.
0: And, and being bought by, by non-Native Americans. Yes, right?
1: yes. But I will say that, again, another thing that I ran into in this research is, everyone assumes that Native people write for non-Indians or something. Uh, and in my research, I discovered that a close friend of Samson Ockham was going to talk to the Oneida Nations in New York about finding a place to live because they were getting crowded out of their home in Connecticut. And he took with him a copy of that, that, that sermon. And the native people up there said, would you read that to us? And so he, he sat down and he read it to them. And they were very, very proud to know that they had a, a native spokesperson down there in Boston that was going to lead people up and that community became the Brotherton community, which is now in Wisconsin. They had to keep moving. But it's centered on this, this powerful man who used writing to create community out of many different tribes. Uh, but to, uh, throughout my research, I found Native people very interested in the, their own expressions of writing and listening to the stories of, of fellow Native uh, writers and, and, uh, and speakers, so. Mm-hmm.
0: So, part of this was to tell their own story among themselves for their own history and so on. Right. But as as you mentioned in a paper, a picture you had in the paper this yeah. week, some of it also was used to protest conditions, protest yes. federal government rulings yes. and so on. Tell us about that.
1: Uh, throughout the, the course, uh, this, this book covers the period 1663, which is the first uh, Bible printed in the United States. It's printed in, in the Boston area and it's printed in an Algonquin language. It's not an English Bible, but that's the first Bible in America is an Indian Bible. Um, and it goes to 1880 because 1880 is kind of a cutoff date where education, boarding school education was forced on Indian people. So there's this interesting period where there's a lot more autonomy in Indian country. And throughout, whether it's the Cherokee Nations in the uh, 1830s, uh, the removal of the uh, five tribes in the southeast, uh, whether it's the Seneca Nation I deal a lot with here who were also removed in the 1830s, at every point when American Indian nations are threatened in the eighteenth and nineteenth century their rioters come out as well as their warriors, right? And they come out in both the native language and they come out in English or in the case of California, which I'm doing some work on now, in Spanish. Uh, So at every turn uh, by 1830, American Indian nations had aw- awakened to the need for this kind of technique along with others they already had in their arsenals at, in their own traditions. Yeah.
0: What are some of the most um, moving things that you found as you were putting your book together? Well,
1: the first one is is this Bible I told you about, the 1663, it's called the Eliot Bible. It's actually in uh, Massachusetts language, it's called Apiblum God. Uh, God is a word that can't be translated into Algonquin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found several copies that have marginalia from the young Native students. These would be Pequot students. Mm-hmm. And it's been translated by a famous linguist named Ives Goddard. Um, and it's very, very sad to read the translations because they say things like, I am not worthy to read this book because I'm struggling so hard to understand this experience. And, and that kind of breaks your heart, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then later in the uh, century, when I get to the school systems, mm-hmm. um, you'll read, the teacher's curriculum, and they're required to uh, mark down who's attending every day, and they have three categories: white, Indian, and half-breed, um, and things like that. In yeah. the in the record, become a little difficult when you're uh, you're you're trying to tell a a story that, that you, know, you don't want to get too emotional about, but it's right. quite it's quite a human story as well.
0: Yeah, well, I think you even have brought something with I you. I did, you? and
1: I'm I'm glad to have with us. We have some representatives of um, the. Iowa, people for whom the uh, state of Iowa is named, and in our special collections in the library, we have a copy of an original hymnal that was printed in, I want to say 1840, let me see here, 43. Um, And this gives you a good example of what these early Native books looked like. Now, though this was promoted by a missionary who came into the Iowa community, The Iowa people, as all the communities I write about in my book, had a say in how this language came out on the page. They had to negotiate with those ministers who didn't speak their language to figure out how they could represent, in printed words, the sounds of the Iowa language. That's why in these kind of alphabets you see the the hyphen. There's hyphens between each syllable. It makes it easy to pronounce for, for people who can't pronounce the language. Let me just show you what a hymn looks like in Iowa. Uh, and these hymnals are used. As I understand, you all still have some tradition. I, I believe down that there is some use of this. And we were Jackie and I were talking, Choctaw uh, Choctaw Nation, and, and we all have these. Everybody has this tradition that goes way back to this time. And you, you'd agree, wouldn't you? By now, these have become. They're no longer the missionaries. They're no longer the Europeans. They're the native communities now. They've become their book. Right? And it's part of their culture now. And that's something that we are also been working with. So, um, I really want to thank Peter Balasteri back there who came over from Special Collections with a very top secret, high security envelope to bring this very <laughs> rare book. And he's letting me actually hold it to show you. This is a, this is a very rare book, so, yes. Yeah, that's thank you.
0: terrific, thank you. Well, Jackie Rand, let me go to you and, and ask you to tell us how books fit into the larger picture of Native American history, what we know of Native American history.
2: Well, I wasn't expecting that question, but I, um, you know, we, I would just say from my own personal experience, not as a scholar, but just as a Choctaw girl, little girl, my mother, um, we, I grew up in a house full of books, and it was because my mother had um, she and her siblings were taken from the parents, my, my grandparents, when my, I think my mother was five and um, my uncle was two and put into the boarding schools, the Federal Indian Boarding Schools in Oklahoma. Um, they were all di- put, divided up and put into different schools. My mother graduated when she was 16 and she was very, I mean, her life was very marked by this experience. Uh, In fact, all of those children, even though they went on to be accomplished people in in their own right, uh, they were all very much marked um, with deep, deep sadness that never left them. Um, Sometimes, as a result, they weren't great parents, right? But my mother was an avid reader. I'll tell you this really hysterically funny story. So, my mother gets very old. She lives forever. My mother lives forever. And I, she, it became very clear to me that my mother was sick and that she wasn't getting the proper care. And so, I thought, and I thought she was like very close to dying. Of course, she wasn't. So um, my mother was a very tough person, so I went, I dropped everything, and I was an, an assistant professor, and I went and got her, and I brought her back with me. I'm raising my two children, and then my mother comes back into my life. And so she ends up living another five years, of course. And so during that time, you know, my mother somehow late in her life, or maybe it, it would always been that way, I don't know, but she would always read like these horrible, horrible magazines like the National Enquirer <laughs> and the Globe and whatever else is out there. And so I found a drugstore in Iowa City that was kind of not like a Walgreens. And I found out when these, because she had to have them every, she was like an addict with these things, right? And, um, and so she had to have these every week, and so I found out when they were delivered. And so I would go on a Sunday morning, early, and get like $20 worth of these things, <laughs> and sneak out into my car. <laughs> so one day I'm there, and it's, all of that rack is right by the door of the store. So I'm there, like stacking these things up, you know, and I'm always mad when this happens. I'm always like really mad. And um, I hear this, well, hello, Jackie. And I just went, no way. No way. It was David Scorton (laughs) when he was president of the university. And um, I had been some, he just knew me from working on Indian stuff with the students. And so I was like, Has this armful of these things, and I turned around and said, well, hello, Dr. Scorton, (laughs) (laughs) gotta go. (laughs) So, you know, my mom was a big reader. She always read, you know, she always had books. I remember when I was really little, like I was in first grade, and my mother was helping me read To Kill a Mockingbird. And so, you know, Books came into our life through um, the boarding school system, but we also have the hymnal, you know, and, um, and so one of my favorite things to do um, was to go see my Aunt Rosalie, who is a very devout Christian, and, um, and she would always want to sing to me because I'm not a Christian. And so, um, I would sit with her and she would sing out of the Choctaw hymnal to me. Yeah. So, you know, and these, I think that, you know, as an historian, I've come across often um, you know, in the 19th century and, and actually just in my library carol yesterday in the 20th century in the 1960s you know, very strong criticisms of this writing business because frequently white people wrote things down and then they didn't keep the promises that they wrote down. And leaders from time to time have chastised the United States government for its, its willingness and ability to write things down as if writing a solemn promise that they never intended to keep. And you know, and sort of um, valorizing the spoken word over the written word. Um, like just yesterday, I was reading um, this comment that this uh, Mississippi Choctaw chief was saying to somebody in the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, that you write things down and you, and you don't keep your word. But when I sp- speak my word out loud, I, I must keep my word, right? So it's kind of a fraught place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you speak Choctaw? No, because uh, my, parent, my mother and all of her siblings uh, came from speakers. My grandma was a speaker, my grandpa was a speaker, um, but the boarding school uh, prohibited them from speaking their language, and they went in when they were so little. Um, and they were just there, you know, through all of their formative years. And so they lost the language, but um, you know I think what's really important about all of this is when I was a, uh, started graduate. Uh, I had a career before before this. Um, I worked at a museum, and so when I went to start a graduate school, it was in 1990, and I went to University of Oklahoma this field has changed so dramatically in such a short time. When I was a graduate student, um, I thought I was equal to the professors, (laughs) because I'd already had a wife and my children were very little. And and I got into a real struggle with my advisor, because I said, you know, I want to write history with Indians in the center of this history. And he said to me, I remember this huge argument we had, and he said, sitting across the desk from me, said, well, Ms. Rand, he said, it's all very well and good that you want to do that. It's a laudable, noble goal. Unfortunately, you can't do that because they didn't leave any sources. And that was in 1990. You can see how radically, I mean, the Latin Americanists are going, what? because they are like so far ahead of us in you know, this uh, United States context uh, in terms of the field. And so this is why a book like this, is, it's a prize-winning book and it should be a prize-winning book because it breaks down all that kind of, um, of uh, stuff. But my point being that because we have digital humanities now, so much language revitalization is going on do you know, every day when I open up my email, I have a missive from the Choctaw tribe of Oklahoma. And it's a sentence in Choctaw. And it makes me so happy. It comes out of the nation. It's all got all of the grammar and breaks down the sentence. And, and um, it's like one little tiny lesson, right? And it makes me so happy to have that. Because you know, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I just had a lot of bitterness about having our family having lost the language because of those schools.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I think we're going to talk about all night is how um, the written word, yes, but language and arts carry culture, carry histories. Even for those of us who aren't, you know, part of that that particular group, um, I talk a little bit about current efforts among the the tribes you're familiar with to maintain language or to revive a language that may have almost been lost. I understand there's something happening even with the Meskwaki nation here. Uh, Do you know anything about that, Jackie?
2: Well, I mean, I just, I know of them. I'm not a language person. I'm just an Indian who's lost language, so um, uh, I don't really know. That's not my field of research, but I can tell you that There are some fascinating, like just truly fascinating projects that are going on. For example, yes, the Meskwaki are, you know, they still have a fairly high number of speakers at the Meskwaki, I don't know what it is. But relative to a lot of other tribes, they still have a very high number of speakers. And there are a number of tribes in the United States that still, regardless of everything that's gone on, they still have high numbers of speakers. Um, But the Miami, I don't know if you guys know the Miami people, but um, the Miami supposedly had gone through language death, which meant that it just was over. And there was this one guy who uh, actually is, it went, it was teaching at a, a university. He started with his family and with a book like one of these things, you know, like the, the hymnal or a Bible. and the Miami language is coming back. Now some, you know, precise linguistic types might argue that a language cannot come back from language death, I don't know. But um, for the Miami people, their language is coming back and it's just really and truly from this one guy and his wife and their two little kids. Mm -hmm. And it's grown, you know. So there are a number, there are lots of, um, there was like, you know, like a, a sort of vogue among tribes to start holding these language immersion uh, camps for children, right? And like uh, Janine uh, P's Windy Boy yes, yeah. up at Crow yeah. Nation, she got like a MacArthur for some of that kind of work of around language immersion. So, uh, so yeah, and of course now what's really cool is that it, it flows over into the arts. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in my lifetime, I mean, just since I was in grad school, um, there have been um, native authors who, I, it's hard to believe that these things were controversial at a time. It just is so bizarre to me now. But um, it was controversial, but um, sc- uh, writers like Louise Erdrich, who just won uh, the National Book Book Award for The Roundhouse. Amazing book, everybody should read it. Um, She started incorporating Ojibwe into her text. And then all of a sudden there was a kerfuffle over that. I don't really (laughs) understand why. But now there are these really cool kids who incorporate native language into, of course they had to do this into their rap music, right? But what better way to get kids to really embrace the language than to put it to some god-awful rap song, Mm
0: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Let's walk back just a little bit in time. Uh, One of the things you mentioned in the piece you wrote was that in the Mm mid-1800s, there was a lot of interest in, for example, the autobiography of of Blackout. Yeah, Yeah. talk about that.
1: Well, I think this is another reason, you know, you asked about, were Native people writing out of a political context Mm -hmm. or against certain things? And they were surrounded at that time, and I know a lot of Native writers that I encountered, they have a prefaces to the work. They might be telling a history of the, uh, the uh, Six Nations, the Iroquois Nations, but they'll write a preface all the time saying, uh, my favorite one is from 1880, uh, Elias Johnson, a uh, Tuscarora man says like, I know what you're saying. What, another Indian book?
3: <laughs> and
1: uh, again, I'm like, what? but I know what he was talking about. He's talking about everybody but Indians are writing these books about Indians. You're surrounded in the 1840s through the 1880s, uh, my life on the prairie, <laughs> my 60 years with the Sioux, right, mm-hmm. you know? Now, if you're a Lakota, you're going, okay, I'm going to write my own book <laughs> about that because this is a very different story from the one yeah. you're telling there. So it is true. It was a, it was the rage in the in the 40s and 50s, uh, and then uh, it kind of died down with the Plains Wars a bit. There was a bit of a backlash against Native people after mm-hmm. Custer was killed. And then there was a resurgence in the 1880s and 90s of interest among Anglo Americans in native stuff but all the while Native people were doing things that were in writing that were intended it was intended to write the record to correct the record right. that was being written around them right yeah. right,
0: right. Mm-hmm. well from an earlier program we did you, you talked about how occasionally a hundred years later the the government does actually issue some sort of vague apology for, for an untruth that had been told for a hundred years, and, and they go back and try to, you know, it hasn't happened often enough, but, but um, the fact that those corrective um, um, statements were made by the Indian groups at the time something happened it has helped later uh, Indian, uh, members of the Indian tribe community to, to you know bring it again before Congress, or before a state government, or whatever, and have some kind of hearing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when uh, my favorite story, of course, is going to be about um, fishing rights in Wisconsin. Um, some I don't know who's from here or not, but um, was it in the '80s, 1980s? Everything really is a blur anymore. But um, there was, um, you know, when people used to sign treaties routinely, there would be reserved. I'm looking at reserved reserved rights clauses in their treaties, where they would give up the land, but the clause would be, "But you still have the right to fish and hunt here in perpetuity." And of course, everyone would conveniently forget this as soon as the ink was dry, right? And they would arrest Indians, and you know, all kinds of terrible things would happen to Indians who were um, just trying to, you know, fish and hunt and subsist. Uh, so. Um, and so there was some very, there was a very important Supreme Court case, Mille Lacs, um, that restored, you know, reaffirmed that's the right language, um, uh, reserved rights for uh, tribes. But um, you know, it was the treaty that got brought back out into the light, and they said, "See, remember this clause." And then there are people who um, correct the historical record. Um, there are people you know sometimes those people are scholars Mm -hmm. but sometimes now the courts before Rehnquist I'm sorry um, before that um, uh, uh, the courts were friendlier to native you know testimony and or in sort of the the community memory of things Mm -hmm. so um, yeah things do get corrected but um, yeah I, I think what I've been doing research in Mississippi for three summers now. I do research in Neshoba County, Mississippi, where one of the reservations of the Mississippi Choctaws um, is at Pearl River, right outside of Philadelphia. And I'm really fascinated by talking to, my research is on violence against Native women, but I learned a bunch of other stuff on the, on the way to that book, right? And um, I'm really uh, fascinated by the community sense, and I don't know what to make of this, the community sense that it has lost its history. You know, these are people who stayed behind after removal. And they literally, like, hid out in the swamps and subsisted, subsisted in the swamps. And it's very hard, you know, it's like just impossible to get them to narrate a history that is sort of connected and, and chronological in some way. But um, you know, that's, I, 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 there was a time when I was a younger scholar, I think when I was, yeah, it would have made me, like it would, really would have bothered me, but I've seen enough things like this happen, seen so much change in the field that I just always now feel optimistic that this is not the end of the story. Like the language recovery, it's not the end of the story. Like land rights, fishing rights, hunting rights, it's not the end of the story for Native America in the United States. Now if we could just turn, overturn Johnson versus Macintosh, <laughs> it would be really great. <laughs>
0: And any final thoughts from you, Philip?
1: Well, I, I was going to say that um, one, the new stuff I'm working on is, is on min, manuscripts, and, and a lot of the stuff that I, I recover, you know, it's labeled ethnography, uh, linguistics, and it's not. I mean, it's, it's art or it's culture or whatever. I've been working with the Iroquois Nation uh, materials that I found in, in various archives, and one of them is just a little Xerox over there on the, the front page, it was written by a man named Seth Newhouse in 1885 at the behest of the Tribal Council because in, he's there living in Canada, mm-hmm. and Canadian government passed something called the Indian Act in which they wanted to democratize the Indian nations of the Iroquois Confederacy so that they would vote for their leaders. Well that's like the worst thing you could do. Mm-hmm. The very first word in his story of how they choose leaders is cosmogony, that is, the nature of the cosmos is affected by this, right? Mm-hmm. So he wrote a 300-page document going back to the 18th century describing the ways that the Iroquois had always done things. Mm-hmm. And that book, I mean, that exists today and then Mohawk are still fighting, right? Mm-hmm. And, but it's, it's that kind of thing that, that is where language and, and politics and culture and sovereignty all come together.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for starting us off with such a a good conversation. Philip Round and Jackie Thompson-Rand, thank you very much. Thank you. This is World Canvas, and I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for joining us for this program on the book, culture, languages, and arts of indigenous peoples. If you'd like to see or hear this program again, multiple viewing and listening opportunities are available, and you can find them at our website, which is international.uiowa.edu slash World Canvas. Our next guests are coming up to the stage right now, and we're going to keep our attention on the Native American experience a bit longer, but turn our focus to the tribe that once claimed the territory between the Missouri and Mississippi River. From Minnesota to St. Louis, and that gave our state its name, the Iowa. So, joining me here are Kelly Rundle and Tammy Rundle, and welcome. Thank you both for coming. So, you are filmmakers, producer, and writer, and um, one of your recent documentaries is on the Iowa called Lost Nation, the, the Iowa. Um, let's discuss your project, how you came into the making of this documentary, and how you got to know the Iowa people and their history. I'll go to you first, Kelly.
4: Well, we. Um... <clears throat> It was suggested to us by someone who saw our first documentary, Velisca Living with a Mystery. And um, as, as you may know, there aren't too many people in the state of Iowa, or anywhere for that matter, who know much about the Iowa, and I'm embarrassed to admit that you know, we were two of those people. Sure. But we looked into the story uh, as we do with any suggestions we might receive, and we realized that it was not only a great story Uh, in American history but also a great and and sort of a basic story in Iowa history that had been untold uh, in a film but also untold in a book that was really accessible to regular folks. So um, we've just been fortunate uh, that we were introduced to the story and we've been fortunate to spend a lot of time with uh, our Iowa friends in Kansas and Nebraska and also Mm -hmm. in Oklahoma.
0: Yeah. So I've lived in Iowa all my life I don't know the story of the Ioway. Tell us who they were, how long they occupied this space.
4: Well, the Ioway origin story uh, begins uh, in, uh, on the Door County Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, their origin site is uh, on Green Bay. Uh, but if you think about, um, and I guess the first reference to the Ioway, a uh, historical reference, was uh, uh, contact with the French, and that would have been around 1670. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time we hear the word or reference to Iowa, uh, a word uh, or a name given to them, not what they call themselves. Oh, really, really, uh-huh. Um, but the Iowa and other historic tribes like the Oto, the Missouri, the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago and other tribes are descended from a cultural group that archeologists would uh, refer to as the Oneota. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about um, occupation of Iowa or the upper Midwest, if you think about the Iowa starting out in northeast Iowa, maybe up around Decorah and then sort of moving in a, a counterclockwise direction around the state to where uh, perhaps a hundred years uh, later in uh, 1760, uh, there was a 60-year occupation of a site near Eldon, Iowa on the Des Moines River. Um, and then by the time we get into um, removal, which happened in 1837, the Ioway are in the what was called the Platte Purchase Area in uh, northwestern Missouri. So then we have the Iowa moving on to a reservation in Kansas. Uh, A number of years later, in the late uh, 1870s, we have a split. Uh, Some folks decided they didn't want to acculturate at -hmm. the rapid rate that was happening in Kansas, and so they uh, moved to Indian territory uh, to uh, hopefully lead a traditional life there. Mm
5: -hmm. But within 10 years then, of course, they were in the same situation as the Iowa up in in Kansas and Nebraska.
0: Right, hmm. So the way you described it, it sounds as though they were quite, uh, they they moved sort of lock, stock, and barrel. They'd be in one place for a while, and then they moved on? Or there were permanent communities that were sort of throughout Iowa at the same time that they moved into northwestern Missouri?
4: Uh, They moved around rather freely, and even in Kansas, you know, we sort of, because we're so programmed by watching old westerns, largely produced in the Mm -hmm. 40s and 50s, we think about uh, native uh, settlement as being a certain kind of way, and mm-hmm. uh, even in Kansas when they were first uh, moved there onto a two hundred square mile reservation, uh, there were sort of individual camps you might have various headmen with groups around them, mm-hmm. and so it wasn 't all in one one area necessarily yeah yeah, but they were r- relatively mobile and we don 't know exactly what uh, prompted every move. Sometimes it might be that the hunting is, is uh, you know, an area gets hunted out and right. so one sure. moves on.
0: Sure. Well, of course, we're talking about the languages and the written word and so on. Did the Ai have a uh, written language that you're aware of?
4: They did not have a written language and um, the hymnal that was uh, shown earlier was an example of probably the, the, to our knowledge anyway, and we're not linguists. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be the earliest example of a written version of their their language, mm-hmm. and that text um, it probably uh, it's not something that uh, the Ioway would necessarily look at back on now as being theirs, so to speak. Um, it's a perhaps more a reminder of of a loss than something that's that's been retained. Uh, the missionaries had in mind a, a more effective way to proselytize the Ioway. They didn't they didn't have in mind a way to preserve the language. Sure. Inadvertently, they did do that because these books now provide a key uh, for those people who are uh, working on the language, and a confirmation that the, the language that's spoken in the present day is very similar, if not identical, to that that was spoken mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 1840s.
0: Uh, yeah. How many Ioway still uh, are together, still identify as Ioway?
5: Uh, in Kansas, Nebraska, well, the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, I believe they're about 3,500. 3,500. And uh, then for the Iowa tribe of Oklahoma, I think it's about 750. Mm-hmm. So it's a small tribe. Approximately.
0: Yeah. So, so you mentioned uh, a split. What were the challenges these, these folks were facing that caused this?
4: Well, the this, this split was prompted by, um, uh, by American expansion. Um, Early on, there was a feeling that uh, by the, the leaders uh, in particular, that uh, acculturation and accommodation was the key to survival. Mm-hmm. And so um, the historical leaders that we know of, uh, White Cloud, who people in Iowa would know as Mahaska, mm-hmm. uh, and his son, and then um, also his brother, uh, Nohart, these were uh, people who, f- who felt acculturation was probably the answer to survival, mm-hmm. but there were other people in the tribe and other leaders. We we document this in the first uh, uh, installment of Lost Nation: The Iowa Great Walker, who felt that uh, accommodation was not the way to go. So that um, those two different viewpoints kind of festered, mm-hmm. and by the time uh, the Iowa folks were on the reservation and surrounded by white farmers and Mm -hmm. surrounded by those influences and intermarriage with uh, whites being more prevalent, Um, that kind of, you know, uh, um, created that moment of decision to to go to Oklahoma for Mm -hmm. the the more traditional group.
0: They went to Oklahoma and then uh, the group that did not believe in acculturation, they're the ones who have remained in Kansas?
4: Where they are, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And, and by this time, you know, the historical period, we don't know, of course, before uh, disease and things, how many Iowa folks there were, but you know, the historical estimates maybe around contact us, maybe, maybe 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the, the amount of territory that they sort of claimed as their own, I mean, con- yeah. conservatively, we're probably looking at 70,000 square miles. Yeah. The initial reservation was about 200 square miles, and by the time that had been allotted, And surplus land sold, they ended up with about 20 square miles. So, uh, Mm -hmm. one thing we discovered in kind of doing the the last two parts that we just completed um, is that everything was about acquiring land, you know. So, um, and land loss was a tremendous uh, hardship for them. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you told me before we got going on the program about a map, an Iowa map. Uh, Explain that.
4: Well, not long after the tribe (coughs) was removed, uh, and actually, all Native Americans were officially removed from the state of Iowa before settlement. It was a very orderly situation. It wasn't like in Missouri where things were happening, at, you know, at once and not all. It wasn't organized. But um, the Iowa participated in a land claim, uh, essentially a, a counter uh, claim, I guess, against the Sac and Fox in Washington D.C. in 1837. And one of the ways they used to argue that case, they thought, well, let's make something let's create something that will appeal to our white uh, uh, arbitrators you know Mm -hmm. so uh, essentially in a a court type of a setting they presented an exhibit and the exhibit was a map created by the iowa that's i'm not sure the size uh, it's say roughly 40 inches tall and maybe 30 inches wide Uh, two sheets of paper glued together and on the map they depicted 200 years of oral tradition and oral history that indicated not only where the Iowa tribe had lived in the upper Midwest, but even uh, other villages, other uh, native tribes that they had visited, and so on. Uh, A map that now uh, archaeologists uh, can look to to, uh, correlate these sites, you know, to actual sites. So it's an amazing document that um, when we premiered our film in 2007. It was here in Iowa City at the Natural History Museum.
5: It's one of the great maps of the world, considered really? one of the yeah. great yeah. maps it of the It went from world. here
4: to the Field Museum to be displayed among other great maps wow. uh, from, from, of wow. the world.
0: Terrific. You discovered this? They, they showed it to you when you were... No,
4: no, no. It's, no. it's in the National Archives. Well, no. well, it's no. just one of the little stories, I guess, that yeah. we discovered. Right. The Iowa story, perhaps like many, um, the story of many smaller tribes, uh, is really scattered around. Uh, when we first started working on the project, there were uh, a number of people who had been working on the topic independently in different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, when we just had the premiere of the two new films, now everybody now knows everybody else, so everybody's networked, uh, yeah. and that's great.
5: It was interesting listening to the other speakers regarding the language. The Iowa, um, of course, their language is endangered. I think there are just there's one fluent speaker left. <laughs> And uh, and a few Iowa that still speak, you know, sentences and words that kind of thing. So one of the things that we wanted to do with our films was go to that one fluent speaker and have him translate the film into Iowa. So it's somewhat it's a way for us to help yeah. try to preserve the language.
0: Exactly. Now, will your film be available for viewing through public libraries? I know your films have been on PBS, and how can people find them?
4: Yeah, they are uh, available. They're, they're always broadcast on Iowa Public Television mm-hmm. and other Midwestern public television stations. Um, the first Iowa film I know is in a lot of libraries. It's here at the university. It's in a variety of, of places. Right. We have screenings coming up of the new films in the Quad Cities, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the dates. And...
5: Yeah, March 16th and 17th, uh, the Putnam Museum, giant screen, <laughs> it's going to be on there. Right. Blackhawk State Historic Site as well. But it's we're getting bookings really all over the place. Mm -hmm. With Iowa One, we were all over the country and I think that's gonna end up happening with this film.
0: And I understand you're both honorary Iowa. How did that happen?
5: Uh, You got me.
4: (laughs) At the premiere in Des Moines, um, Tammy and I had thought, well, what if we could get 100 Iowa people to come back to the state of Iowa for that event? That was in 2007. It was on the anniversary of the No Heart Map that we were talking Mm -hmm. about. And so on the night of the premiere, we realized that we had a full crowd, but we had nearly 200 Iowa people. And so it was the largest gathering of Iowa people back in the state since they were in the, in the state of Iowa, since they were removed, but also the largest gathering of the two Iowa nations uh, that we know of. Uh, we just had uh, the premiere here, and we did have 100 Iowa people again uh, here in Iowa City. So we were very pleased
5: uh, about but that. But for that first premiere, um we hadn't shown the film to anybody, so we were pretty nervous about it. But uh, the Iowa Tribe of Oklahoma honored us. Um, so we were completely surprised, but uh, came up and, and presented us with uh, blankets and uh, made us honorary tribal members. And we were just completely humbled and yeah. don't feel worthy, but it was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and the Iowa, all of them have been like that towards us us. They've uh, really embraced us and supported our work, and it's it's been a wonderful journey for us.
0: Wonderful. Well, gosh, thank you for coming here to share this story with us. We'll look for the film, uh, Tammy and Kelly Rundle. Thank, thank, you, so you. thank you. Yes. you so much. Thank you so much. This is World Canvas, and our topic tonight is the book culture, languages, and arts of indigenous peoples. I'm Joan Kerr, and joining me now on stage are Mercedes Niño Murcia, very nice to have you here, professor and DEO in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. She's a linguist, and she co-authored The Lettered Mountain with her fellow guest, Frank Solomon. Uh, Frank Solomon is a professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's an adjunct professor of anthropology here at the University of Iowa. As I mentioned, he co-authored The Lettered Mountain with Mercedes. So thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Um, So we've been talking so far about indigenous peoples in North America. And I thought uh, we would take a look now at South America. Your particular work has been with peoples in the Andes of Peru. And um, tell us about their writings, whether as an indigenous form or a transformation during the colonial period. Uh, Frank, you've worked in the Andes for for quite a long time. Tell us about the, the people that you have most closely studied.
6: I've been working uh, for upwards of 30 years in the province of Huarochiri in Peru, and usually in the same place. The name of it is Tupicocha. It's a little village way up there. It's at more than 10,000 feet of altitude. It's home to about 1,500 people. And it's a community that really holds together. It's a community that does not allow any private land tenure, only communal land. And the only way you can gain rights to use that land is by being born into the village or being adopted. The village no longer speaks its ethnic language, called uh, Tupi, nor uh, the Quechua language, which was formerly the language of the Inca Empire. Only Spanish. But it is at the same time, it's... uh, an intensely Andean community. They, they follow a lot of the old ways, like when they feast, they feast on eating guinea pigs. Uh, when they have meetings, they, they suck coca leaves. And yearly, they troop up to the highest crests of the mountains to pay their respects to the mountain deities who they know to be the owners of water and the owners of the weather. They're organized in clans, a grand old Amer- Native American custom in North and South America. And in that and in many other ways, they, they seem very, very Indian. But in Peru and most Latin American countries, things are not sorted out by blood quantum or by reservation. It's largely a matter of indigenous is as indigenous does. And so people of our area uh, don't feel pressed to declare we are Indians or we're not Indians. They, they feel that they're a free village with a, a very powerful, distinctive local culture. Mm-hmm. And to get to the point, that local culture involves an enormous amount of writing, writing with a deep pedigree. Uh, I got into this matter because This happens to be the place where, in the year 1608, 12 years before English people landed at Plymouth Rock, somebody in that village wrote down a book that's one of its kind in the universe. It's a book that tells about the ancient gods and priesthoods of Andean Peru in a Peruvian language, in Quechua. When I learned about that in grad school, I was head over heels. I started studying it then and never stopped. (laughs) Uh, For a while, I was not able to do the field work I wanted because there was warfare in the area. That was the time of the Shining Path War. But in 1992, the war ended, and I started a long series of field field expeditions. And, And Mercedes got interested in the things that I brought home. So, this became a joint venture, uh, and since then we've been on the road together.
7: Well, um, our collaboration um, joint put together his anthropological perspective with my sociolinguistic perspective. <laughs> and what was so appealing to me is that. I had been working on mm, how n- the norms of a language get established and all this creation of um, academies to regulate how you write. And then um, this village was producing a lot of writing and less versed than the urban writers and less policed, and they exhibit um, not only that exuberance in writing, but um, creativity. They came up with solutions, how to interpret this and put it in writing. Uh, So to see that corpus of data was irresistible, Um, So I decided I need to go there and see um, doing field work, the relationship between the language they used and the writing and the social life of this community. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to understand that um, I grew up in Latin America, in Colombia, and during my entire education, we got the idea that indigenous people do not write, uh, peasants do not write, and not only that, but the emphasis and you have to write within this and this and that, so strict. But going to this village, I thought the power of writing is not on correctness, the power of writing is what they make out of their writing. And I was listening to Jackie um, about how in the, commun- the community that she was describing, the oral word was held accountable yeah. and nothing in writing. Well, in Tupikosha, is completely the opposite. You write every single detail that happens in the public sphere. Anything, but to a, a detail level of detail that it will be amazing to anyone. Um, an earthquake happens. And seven minutes later, they, they were writing about the earthquake and the damage and everything. Um, Everything gets documented from a community meeting to a soccer match. Um, When I was there in one of my days working with them, um, we went to went with them. They were supposed to clean uh, well. And they don't need during the entire day because of the coca leaves. But I thought, "Mm, well, all day I got some cookies and things for them. Well, in the documents it says, yeah, this professor from Iowa brought this type of cookies and blah, blah, every detail is there. But the thing is, it's not only writing for them, it's not the description of what happened is more than that. It's like nothing has happened until it's written, approved by all the participants, and signed. Everybody signs, and it's and the amount of writing they produce yeah. and have produced for centuries is something that no one in, in a city will produce and keep so carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, the pre-Columbian um, system of organization is preserved. So they have this 10 IUs um, that uh, Frank mentioned and they document, each IU document everything, but little trivial things that an um, urban eye will think, oh, this is boring and what. Mm-hmm. But if you think it's boring, it's because you haven't understood yeah. what the meaning of pretty writing is. You, if you said, if the paper says so-and-so, didn't arrive on time to do this community work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's there, so he needs to, next time he needs to provide the cement or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And next time they read it, and if he, you know, fulfilled the, the, whatever needed to do, yeah. it's an, uh, annotated. Yeah. He did pay this, he council they'll find, mm-hmm. so every single detail um, in a community that is not big.
0: Yeah. Well, so who is designated to be the, the uh, person who writes down all these various details? You said that everyone has to agree with it, what's being written, they have to sign it. Are these people sort of elected in a, in a popular vote, or are they appointed by the community, or are they just assigned themselves to be part of the record-keeping crew? Um,
7: there are not a single author. One is the secretary. Mm -hmm. One is in charge of putting everything in writing, but then it's read and amended or clarified, Mm -hmm. and then everybody signs, Mm -hmm. every participant. Mm -hmm. So it's community. It's the community. It's the group that owns, They has the ownership. Yeah the authorship.
0: Can you tell us how, how this process, which you say is quite ancient as far as we know, how was it changed during the period of, the colonial period when the Spaniards uh, came in? I mean, I would imagine they tried to change the, the way the community was run, or, or were these people so far up in the mountains that they had less direct Spanish uh, direction?
6: Well, that story is resembles uh, what we learned from Philip Round in his wonderful book that uh, When Europeans came and sought to establish the alphabetic word as the authoritative word The peoples of the Americas already had a Varied repertory of ways to make facts visible Mm -hmm. ways to make ideas visible and in that in that crossroads uh, They did two things they rehabilitated and innovated around uh, ancient ways of representing ideas, but at the same time they also worked on getting their own grip on the technology of pen and paper. As far as the ancient technology uh, is concerned, I've spent a lot of time on the study of the pre-Columbian Andean way of making records. These records were not painted or carved. They were knotted. That kind of records are called kipus. I brought along a a simulacrum of a Mm kipu. This is what they look like. This would represent a small portion of kipu. A major document would be so long, you couldn't hold it in two arms. Mm -hmm. Some of these documents work with numbers that go into the hundreds of thousands.
0: So describe these for us. These are knotted cords. Yes. They are are cords that are telling a story there. And the people who understand how quipus are used could read this and and tell us what it means. And perhaps you can as well. What kind of detail is indicated by this quipu?
6: Well, like I said, this is not a real quipu. This is a demonstration. Um, These served as records of the Inca empire, but for me, the big research surprise, I, of course, this is something we learn about as archaeology in grad school. So imagine my surprise one day when I arrived in Tupicocha and uh, a fellow who runs a little grocery store opened it, closed the store so it made it half dark, opened a cabinet uh, in the rear of the store, and out flopped this big ball of shiny brown and gold yarn. And he said, I heard you might be interested in this. <laughs> he held it up. It was a kipu. It was one of a big suite of khipus that belonged to the, to the ten clans that Meche mentioned. They called them the Alius. Well, once I realized that we were dealing with a, a village that actually had preserved its kipus, I, I, I just dropped everything and started working on that. And as always, this is how it always goes with researchers. You always show up a little too late. <laughs> um, in this case, the kipus had been deactivated, not in the current generation, but in the generation of the grandparents or the great-grandparents. There was nobody around who still claimed he could make one or, or update one. But I did get a good break. Because of the facts that Mercedes is talking about, because of this extreme strictness about making records, where the record left the cords, it entered the pages. Mm-hmm. And that includes, in the early pages, some descriptions about kippus and a lot of good clues about what they contained. What they contained is just what Mercedes implied they would, namely, records of people's obligations to their group and the group's obligation to the whole village. And in this sense, I think you could say, this is a lettered community if there ever was one. Mm -hmm. But it leaves an important loose end, and that's this. Knowing that a medium is good for making records is not quite the same thing as saying that it consists of writing a language. When we say writing, for example, the alphabet or the Cherokee syllabographic script. We're talking about signs that stand for speech sounds, a way of representing the stream of speech in a given language on paper. But if you think a little more carefully, that's not the only thing that writing is. So for example, we say that you can write music. Sheet music is not in any language. It's kind of an end run around language. And that's why it doesn't make any difference if the cellist is Korean and the conductor is German. They're on the same page anyway because that page isn't in any language. So now we have big controversy about kipus. Some people think that they're writing in in the same sense of the word that alphabets and syllabaries are. Other people say, no, they're more similar to sheet music or perhaps to data graphics or perhaps to a spreadsheet. I'm inclined to the second of these opinions. I think to do justice to the graphic imagination of Native America, you don't have to go around pretending that they're just like the highbrows in Europe. There are other ways.
0: So, Mercedes, let's talk a little bit about what, what a linguist actually is studying. When you, when you go to a village like this, what is it you're looking for? What gives you clues about that culture? Or
7: Okay. Um, before I went to, to do field work, I had questions like, do they write in the same way language is used for collo- uh, colloquial usages? That was one of the questions, or what are the models of correction, of correctness that they have? How they if got to write so much if they work all day up in the heights, and um, what happens? So getting there, um, I discovered that the way they talk and the way they write is completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a diglossia. I mean, two different forms of writing, of using the language. And their writing um, could be formulaic and could be sound legal, but you have to think of where did they learned it from and how. They um, made the alphabet their own and um, started to copy documents and copy many times the documents until the document looked identical to the original. That was one way. They got primers from Spain they got um, books from Spain. And there is one that is called El Mosaico that was used for generations and generations in Latin America. The one that I found in the community was like a, the 22nd edition of that little book that came from Spain. So they learned, um, some of them walked Long distances to get classes from in San Damian, the capital of the province, mm-hmm. and came back and taught um, others. And you, I was wondering, but why? Why this fascination with writing? And uh, asking them, is they, their reason was learning how to write, read and write. Is the best way to protect ourselves against exploitation. Mm-hmm. Knowing how to read and write um, makes us, you know, harder to be fooled. Yeah. Nobody will be can fool us yeah. if we know and we understand the documents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons they got so much into. The, yeah. the writing and the alphabetic writing. Right. And um, now they, they write so much that um, even little pieces of paper are hanging around with information, with, um, I got this in such and such place, I paid this. And they have this beautiful expression that says, papelito manda. Yeah, that is kind of, even a little piece of paper is vast, is, you know, commands power.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm curious, in this age where so much of the world is becoming very digital and, you know, uh, a, a lot of information or reflection passes by in an email or a tweet or something, is, is this village yet very affected by that kind of communication or no?
7: Yes, they are close to Lima. Mm. And um, when we were doing field work, there was no electricity, no phone, nothing. But now they have electricity. Mm. Um, They have phones, and cell phones. People have cell phones. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
6: And uh, the digital age is is beginning. Uh, Just yesterday, I got some emails from San Damian, the next town from Tupicocha. And uh, the word is that the phone company has just started providing digital service, so now uh, cyber cafes are springing up uh, in these high villages. And uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, The more this happens, the more I find out that although I started this research as an academic project, uh, no sooner do Does it get into Spanish? Then it goes home where it came from. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the conversion of this ancient tradition to to digital media uh, seamlessly integrates itself uh, with the world media scene. It's exciting moments.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So now, did I understand you to say that, that the people in this village speak exclusively Spanish now? They don't speak... Quechua or, or another indigenous language.
7: Now they are monolingual in Spanish.
0: Yeah, yeah. And do the children in this village go off to college in Lima and so on? Is there, is there a lot of out-migration?
7: Yeah, but there is a separation between school and the vernacular writing. Um, it is sad because they don't, it's like a two separate yeah. Um yeah. School receives the books and the curriculum mm-hmm. from Lima mm-hmm. and the teachers follow those plans and yeah. it's like a, nothing is connected. Yeah,
0: interesting. Hmm. And now in terms of these uh, kipu that you have, you've given us a, an example of what one might be like and then the story of this grocer who showed you uh, a kipu from an older time, are they still making these? Is this something that's still being, are records still being kept in the kipu along with other kinds of writing? There's nobody
6: at present who claims ability to make or change kipus, Uh and in fact there's quite a taboo about it. Mm -hmm. These objects are just the crown jewels of the village and of each of the clans. Um, So it would be considered very, disrespectful, to say the least, um, to mess with them. I met people who know fragments of the old system, and I wrote them all down and tried to pull them together. Uh, I sometimes found knowledge where I least expected it. It happened one time that somebody uh, sent a messenger to me and said, you know what? You should go to the schoolhouse. There's something going on that would interest you. I did. And there, I found this little barely adolescent guy. He was about 13 years old at the time, holding in his hand just a kick-ass kipu. (laughs) Uh, It was made out of fresh wool. It still smelled like a wet sweater. Um, And uh, I was astonished. Uh, I asked, where does this come from? And the, the teacher said, well, for my assignment, I asked the students to make an imitation kipu following the old Inca style. And this young man, Neri, just ran away with it. And he brought back this object that I was astonished and I thought you should know about. And I, I really was fascinated, so I asked Neri's parents for permission to interview him. Uh, and uh, I asked him to bring over this Keep with it, he had made. And of course, I asked him how he came to know more about this thing than, than the elders did. And he said, Well, it's because I have a living great grandfather, or I had until very recently, and he became ill and couldn't go out of his house, and it became my job to take care of the old fellow. Uh, and out of sheer boredom, he said to me, Neri, I haven't found anybody who wants to learn these things, so, so I, you just sit still and listen. I'll tell you something about it. And so Neri, in fact, did learn as much as this uh, ancient great-grandfather uh, knew. So it was, uh, and the, his, his judgments on this were, in fact, useful for connecting Tupi Kocha's version of the quipu with the Inca quipu. So it was quite a wake waker-upper. And yeah. Wisdom isn't always where you expect it.
0: No, exactly. Gosh, well, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing these stories with us. Uh, so we have Mercedes Nino Murcia here and Frank Solomon. Thank you so much. Thanks. So, we're going to be moving now in just a moment to the Asante of uh, Ghana in West Africa, and we'll be having Catherine Hale join us. And as she comes up, I'll remind you that this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we invite you to join us for our next program, which will be here in this room on April 5th. And the topic is Refugees in the Heartland. And that program will uh, take place during a multi day conference of the same name, exploring the experiences of refugees, with a particular focus on refugees who have resettled here in the Midwest. So that's April 5th and I hope you'll be able to join us for that. Uh, so Catherine Hale, good to have you with us. Thank you for being here.
8: It's my pleasure.
0: So you have spent a lot of time studying the Asante in Ghana, in West Africa. You are here at the University of Iowa Museum of Art as a curator of African and non-Western art. Uh, so tell us about the Asante.
8: Uh, Well, actually, I've been going back and forth, just to put it into perspective for everyone, the Asante people are a culture who live in what is present-day Ghana, West Africa, and they were one of the most powerful confederacies. Um, People talk about, you know, we've been talking about books, talking about missionary reports, and one of the things that you read about when you read missionary and and early militaristic reports of the, the Asante from that period, people describe the kingdom just saying it was beautiful it was exquisite it was like anything I've seen and more than I've seen in Europe which Um, as as we've also talked about, is not always the the story that comes through. Um, But what's interesting for me in terms of the research that I do, tying in these ideas of written history, but also thinking about art objects, as a curator of African art and and art historian, that's always really interesting to me. And so for me, what my dissertation research is focused on, I'm actually just wrapping up my dissertation at the moment, so you're gonna get a little bit of an earful here. (laughs) Um, But what's really interesting to me is I've looked at at the kind of colonial histories. And I look very specifically at Asante stools. So to give you a bit of background, the Asante people are a matrilineal society and it's very hierarchically organized. So at the very top you have the Asante Hene or the king of the Asante and the Asante Hema or the queen mother of the Asante. And as you work your way down, each sort of level of the socio-political hierarchy has different leaders. And the symbol of these leaders is the Asante stool. And that has been the subject of my dissertation research. And what's been really fascinating to me is that when you read the colonial histories that were written, or you go into museum records, and you look at what people have said about the objects that they brought back during that period, what you always hear about is, this was the seat of a West African chief. And it's repeated over and over again in the literature. And what's really fascinating to me in talking about this idea of language, talking about this idea of written history, is that for me, the art object, they're encoded. They have histories sort of written into them, so to speak. We're not necessarily talking about a script as in a language, but they're created in a way that even though all of this colonial history happened over time, I've used that object as a way to sort of look and say, wait a second, there's a problem here. Because what you discover is that, in fact, while the, the stool is a symbol of chieftaincy, um, as, as one person put it to me very adeptly, the stool is a symbol of the chief only insofar as it makes reference to the queen mother who put him in the position that he is in. And what you discover when you sort of compare what's written in these colonial histories with present-day oral histories, with looking at the objects themselves, is that actually the people who sit on these objects as seats of authority are women and they are very powerful women, and they are the ones who put the chiefs in the positions that they are in. So it's been fascinating to me. I'm, I feel really grateful to be part of such an interdisciplinary conversation this evening because there's so many strands that are linking in there in terms of my own research that I do, and then again, the links with how we think about the art museum and the role, You know, we have an institution that has objects that were collected by people at moments in history when they didn't maybe necessarily completely understand the culture that they were collecting from, they maybe didn't document the ways that they were collecting, or they documented them in ways, as I've just provided you with an example, that maybe aren't necessarily as accurate as you might think. Well, what do we do now that here we are with a museum, we have these objects, how do we work with them? And so, the sort of second part of what my dissertation research and also what my role is as a curator has been taking these objects, and I've been going back for about seven years now to the Asante region in Ghana and working with Queen Mothers to sort of build oral histories around these objects and understand these objects, understand this other vantage point, this other story that wasn't part of that written colonial record.
0: Hmm. Well, so there's a written colonial record and there are these objects that, that tell the story. Was there ever a written Asante uh, language, an alphabet or whatever, what we would think of as a, as a, a script that they used? a, a
8: wonderful question. And actually, it, it takes me back to one of my very first curatorial projects that I worked on. Um, one of the things that's always been important to me in the way that I approach curating is to get as many perspectives, in particular people who are living and working in the cultures that the objects are from. And I was talking to a gentleman at the time. I was doing a sort of interdisciplinary study. And I was looking at textiles. And I was talking, he's actually a political scientist. But I was doing sort of different disciplines takes on textiles. Um, and And I was talking to him and I said, you know, he's, he's actually Ga, so he's from present- day Ghana, but and sort of a related culture to the Asante. had similar traditions. Um, and he had some interesting comments, but the one thing that he said to me that is still stuck to me today is, don't ever let anyone tell you that there's no such thing as a written or a recorded history in sub-Saharan Africa. It just isn't true. And part of what he's making reference to, um, Uh, is the fact that, for example, the Asante people that I work with, this idea of, for example, symbolism. So uh, you have whole just multitudes of symbols that make reference to larger political concepts. They make references to proverbs. And the beautiful thing to me about it, um, people refer, scholars have talked about the Asante and their arts as being at the center of the verbal and the visual nexus. So we've talked a lot about tonight about that idea of the combination of written and language and art, those things really coming together. And that's really important in Asante history and also in contemporary Asante. A lot of the things that I'm talking about right now, I, I want to express the fact that This is a living, active, thriving culture. These are things that are still happening. These are languages that are still being spoken, being used. Um, And talking about that visual-verbal nexus is this idea that, for example, you would have a symbol, uh, whether it's a picture of two two crocodiles who are crossed. And if you are one of the the chiefs, you might have, for example, a a textile. There's a textile that's called an akunatan, which uh, translates as cloth of the great. And if you were presenting yourself in public, you might wear this akunatan over your your legs. And it would have symbols that make references to your role as a leader. And so that crossed crocodile symbol I referred to might be something that's on uh, your cloth. And so not only are you communicating to the people in the audience about your specific role, but the people in the audience are going to be able to read things because they know that language. They know what that means. And when they see two cross crocodiles, they know that, among other things, it makes reference to the proverb that says, you know, two people who share a stomach shouldn't fight over food. (laughs) <laughs> and this is kind of this is something that's really important in, in the idea of the, the kind of uh, Asante approach to that idea of symbolism and that relationship of that verbal-visual nexus. It's this idea that there's all of these symbols that are included in whether it's a linguist staff. Or whether it's a stool, whether it's a cloth that you wear to a funeral, they all have messages that are embedded in them that become not only a way of communicating with one another, but a way of kind of communicating with the ancestors, communicating with the spiritual world. There's a really important sense in which there's a multivalency, there's a form of communication that operates on multiple levels, and depending on who you are, And your level in society, if you're an elder, you're probably going to be able to read that symbol in a multitude of ways. If you're a young person from a specific background, you may read it one way as well. So there's this sense in which it operates in a really, really wide range of of different perspectives, Mm -hmm. but that people read it like a language, and it functions that way, and it has for centuries and it continues to.
0: Yeah, that's the wonderful thing that it's very much a living language and that little guys coming up now are being introduced to, to the symbols, the meanings, the background stories. Uh, was there an effort by the colonial powers to shut down the language?
8: Um, well, that that's something actually that I, I found interesting in, in my experiences. I remember on my, my very first trip to Ghana and I was driving down a a rural road, and there was a school, and I saw that in big English letters it was uh, painted, Speak English. And there was a bunch of little kids running around playing on the playground, and and they were speaking tree, which was the best part about it. Uh, Tree is the indigenous language of the Asante people. Um, There's certainly, I think, uh, as as has been a recurring um, pattern this evening, talking about the impact of colonialism, that in a lot of cases there is that sense in which there's an attempt at an erasure. I can tell you it certainly has not been successful in Asante um, part of, I mean, each colonial history has a different set of circumstances and um, the, the Asante people were colonized by the British. Um, they had a little bit more of an indirect rule, which may have changed the ways that sort of, for example, things like language developed. You do see an interesting, um, at least in my own experiences, I've seen an interesting division between on the one hand. Um, Everybody who speaks to one another all speaks tree. If you go to the marketplace, you speak tree. You're at home, you speak tree. Um, But if you're going to write a note to someone, even though you can write it in tree, you'll write it in English. So there's this sort of division in the ways that you use language that I find really fascinating as well. But for me, language has been a really important aspect of my research, too. That's another reason why I found it so fascinating hearing everybody's stories tonight. Um, Because one of the first things I did when I started working in Asante was I took uh, training in tree. And I realized, too, that even in the sense that we talk about people using a colonial language using English, people who speak tree, um, when they speak English, they speak English that is tree. (laughs) Um, And so I found that once I began to understand Chui, then even when I was communicating with people in English, I understood better what they were saying. And and that's so important because culture is embedded in languages. It's embedded in the ways that we communicate with one another. So again, we can argue that someone is speaking in a colonial tongue, they're speaking English, but guess what? They're still speaking tree.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Well, so as a curator here at the museum, obviously you're, you're dealing with objects and mm-hmm. trying to put some some connections about the meaning in the world of these objects uh, together. Can you tell us about a couple of other things that, at our collection of African art that people might take a second look at?
8: Sure. And of course, I'm tempted, since we're talking about Asante, to keep talking about Asante objects. Mm -hmm. And we do have some of those. But I'll give you an example of some of the other cultures. It's it's really important, um, I think, I just want to say, I mean Africa whenever I'm teaching students I say if you walk away with one thing understand that Africa is a continent not a country. So let me say that up front that this is a continent which is extremely diverse. We have so many different whether it's an environmental or geopolitical climates whatever it is you get different languages, different cultures. Um, So people ask, well, what is African art? How do you really actually group those things together? Um, And some of the things that we're talking about tonight in terms of Um, communication, using objects that were not necessarily designed to be put in an art museum. They were part of an active, thriving community that used them for specific purposes. Well, a lot of arts, one of the similar themes that you can find across the African continent is that they were used as a means of communication, a means of recording history. Um, One of my favorite pieces in the museum is actually a piece um, from Central Africa, specifically the the present-day Democratic Republic of Congo and the Luba people. And it's called a Lukasa, which is a memory board. And what it is, is it's a rectangular shape, probably about you know, this big, so for anyone who's listening to this, about six inches by eight inches, let's Mm say. Um, So it's about a rectangle. And then what's carved onto the surface, more often than not, it actually looks like a turtle shell. Um, It'll have sort of, um, kind of, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it very visually for people, but thinking about it like a turtle shell, but a turtle shell with a lot of texture. Um, And what? that's sort of the base. And then on top, there's three uh, female heads. And part of the reason for that is in luba culture, women are very important. And what it is, it's a, it's a mode of recording and then retelling history. So there's actually elders in society who will keep records, whether it's of important events or whether it is um, you know, ingredients for some kind of medicinal compound and what they do is they take that lucasa memory board and they will take pins and they will put it in and the pins will have you know a, a little knobby head so there's this sense of tactility to it and they put the pins in and then that represents the story whether it's like a geographic map whether it's like a chronology and then later they will retell the story and what i love about it is that what's built into this idea of the lucasa is that memory and history are fluid. And depending on who is telling you that history, the story will change. And so it becomes about when they they sort of feel the pieces that were on the surface, they tell the story in a different way. And depending on who you are, again, similar to what we talked about with the Asante and different members of society, if you're a young person, you're going to read that history differently. If you're an elder, you're going to read that history differently, and in turn, you're going to hear it differently. So to me, when we think about written language and we think about these objects functioning as a form of of language, of history keeping, what I love about the object is there's a sense of fluidity, there's a sense of also resilience—that regardless of what is layered over top of it, that we can still come through—and we can read that in a way that really subverts and adds multiple dimensions to how we understand history.
0: What an interesting job you have! I know I, I love can, it. I
8: mean,
0: yeah, yeah. There really is no end to to what you can discover about these pieces, is there? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, Catherine Hale, thank you so much for being with us tonight. This was great. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And so now we're going to uh, welcome up our last two guests, uh, Paul Dilley and Timothy Barrett are going to join us in this last segment of World Canvas. And we're going to learn about an international project that's currently underway to translate and publish an ancient Coptic religious manuscript. And we'll reflect more generally on the power of the written word and the permanence of early documents as opposed to modern digital devices. So joining me are just to my left, Paul Dilley, assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Religious Studies with a joint appointment in the Department of Classics. Thanks for being here, Paul. Thanks. Next to him, Timothy Barrett. Good to have you here, Tim. Uh, He's the director of the University of Iowa Center for the Book and Associate professor in the School of Library and Information Services. So uh, yeah, thank you both for being here. Uh, well, so I'm gonna go to you, Paul. We've been talking about Africa. We're sure. gonna go to sort of a different part of, of um, the world now. We're gonna talk about a Coptic manuscript that relates to a religious figure from what is now, I guess, Iran. Uh, yeah, tell us about this manuscript.
3: Sure, so in 1945, at about the same time that the Gnostic Gospels and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, about seven Coptic manuscripts made their way to the Cairo antiquities market. Coptic is the Egyptian language, but it's the latest stage of the Egyptian language written with Greek letters. And it was by and large the language of early Christians, but many different types of early Christians, so not just the Orthodox Christians. Uh, And these seven manuscripts were actually not originally written in Coptic, but they were probably a translation of a translation. And their author or their purported author was Mani, Mani being the arch-heretic of Christian tradition, an extraordinary figure who was probably best described, uh, we could call him maybe a a Jewish Christian. Uh, He was a member of a baptismal sect in what is Mesopotamia, so modern Iraq, which at that time was the breadbasket of the Iranian empire. So it was sort of the, uh, the crown jewel of Sasanian Iran. And so Mani, uh, although he grew up in this baptizing community, he felt called from an early age to found his own religion. So he saw himself as the culminating figure in a series of revealers, which included Jesus So from his uh, own traditions that he grew up with. But also, we're talking about the Iranian empire, so also Zoroaster, so the prophet of uh, Iranian Zoroastrian religion. And also, the Iranian empire included Northwest India, so the Buddha as well. Mani saw himself as basically fulfilling and indeed restoring the messages of each of these three major figures. And so he went on, or at least his followers did, to found what's often seen as the first world religion. So people converted from uh, the Atlantic coast in Spain all the way to the Pacific coast in China, in the space of about 200 years. So it was kind of a massively popular and successful world religion. Uh, and in the West, however, it was uh, rapidly persecuted, both by non-Christian emperors like Diocletian, because it was Iranian, uh, and then later by Christian emperors because it was seen as the arch heresy. So uh, in the West, anyway, most of Mani's books were burnt, so similar fate to the Gnostic Gospels, for instance. And uh, as luck would have it, we have these seven codices, which were discovered now more than 70 years ago. And uh, for a number of reasons, they've been slower to be published than the Gnostic Gospels or the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been lucky enough to be part of the team, which is going to uh, eventually, probably we're talking about four or five years before the the critical Mm -hmm. edition comes out. But uh, when it does see the light, uh, there will be uh, a sort of restoration of uh, the record, so to speak, Uh, lots of very interesting things, which we learn both about uh, the history of Christianity, because this is sort of the major other of uh, the Christian church, even though Augustine, who is seen as the, the major uh, Orthodox writer was yeah. for a, a while a Manichaean himself, it's, it's uh, still seen as the arch heresy, but also it will tell us a lot about uh, the religion of ancient Iran. Yeah.
0: Yeah, fantastic! It's sort of an Indiana Jones kind of deal. This thing oh, turns up, and now you're all trying yes. to figure out what it means. Yeah. Um, and so, what is your role in, in this team? You're translating what you see, or you're trying to piece together? That's right.
3: So the text is uh, very well preserved in some areas, not so well preserved in others. And so, myself and uh, two other colleagues, uh, Ian Gardner at University of Sydney, and Jason Bedoun at Northern Arizona are uh, the three of us have basically divided the codex in three. Each of us is responsible uh, to be first reader for a section, and then we just rotate so we all eventually get around to reading the entire thing. Uh, But it's uh, tough going in parts. And we have been aided by multispectral imaging. So we're able to reconstruct uh, a lot of places where the ink has been smeared. Uh, It's better read under, well, as it turns out, in this case, infrared rather Mm -hmm. than ultraviolet. And uh, so it's uh, slow going. But basically what we do is try to actually read the text. That's the first step. What does it say? Uh, And then once we have the Coptic text, fragmentary in places, we try to do an English translation, and if mm-hmm. it's fragmentary, we have to reconstruct the sense of the passage. Wow. Yeah, And then great. we have to figure out what it means, yeah. <laughs> historically <laughs> right. speaking.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, what kind of paper or material was this written on? They're written on, They're written
3: on papyrus. so, so They papyrus. are papyrus uh, codices, that's mm-hmm. the Latin term, manuscripts mm-hmm. is, is the English. Uh, they actually happen to be the largest uh, Known surviving codices from antiquity, so they're upwards of uh, 500 pages, which is a wow. fairly fairly large size.
0: Yeah, exactly. Huh? Phenomenal. Well, it's a good time to bring you into this conversation, mm-hmm. Tim, as a master paper maker, and uh, you, you know. No one knows more about the book, I suppose, at least in our area here, than than you do. Um, do you have anything, first, a reflection on on what uh, Paul is doing, what you've just heard?
9: Well, it's fascinating. I guess I was tempted to ask have you have there been any juicy surprises yet so far. <laughs> oh yeah. Well,
3: there's there's a great uh, thing that I'm I'm working on a a article now. We're trying to because it's a massive project. It'll take about six years to publish. We have a collection of essays based on our work to sort of let people know it's out there. So uh, we thought, or many uh, Iranists, so people who study ancient Iran, thought that the Avesta, which is the uh, sacred writing, if you will, of Zoroastrians, uh, which is written in a, or uh, composed in a very ancient uh, Iranian language called Avesta, it was thought that it was only written down, or most people thought anyway, that it was only Mm. written down after the Islamic conquest, so as an effort to portray Zoroastrianism as a religion of the book. So Mm. uh, in the text that we have, there's a fascinating passage where Mani is conducting a dialogue with an Iranian convert named Pabakos, and in this dialogue, uh, Pabakos says, well, Jesus says this, and it's written in the law of Zoroaster, that uh, you know, and then he goes on to talk about going to heaven. So uh, there's a lot of potential there in terms of trying to figure out: is this evidence for uh, an early written form of the Avesta? If so, was it in Avestan or was it in uh, Middle Iranian Pahlavi? So, or is Mani perhaps using? Uh, Greek writings which claim they're by Zoroaster, which paradoxically these were written down before the actual writings of Zoroaster were in in. So all sorts of uh, <laughs> confusing things to sort out mm-hmm, there, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, uh, important. Yeah. it sounds like opening up a treasure chest.
8: It is. You
9: know, no, it really you've is. been it really blessed is. to. Absolutely. You guys <laughs> open the box and you tell us what's in there. It's pretty exciting. That's yeah. A yeah it, thing. it resonates with me because you know papyrus was a precursor to actual paper in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. area, and you know from 2000 BC right up to uh, the year 1000, papyrus was produced a lot and used a lot and then all of a sudden it kind of disappears It goes out of production. And it's because paper enters the Mediterranean theater around 800, 900, and by the year 1000 it's starting to really cut into the papyrus trade. Um, So yeah, it's a little bit out of my territory, but it's Mm -hmm. really interesting interesting turf. Mm
0: -hmm. And you've just come from a symposium that I know was uh, considering Islamic papers. Uh, Islamic papers
9: and Islamic uh, calligraphy, right? Uh, Jonathan Bloom and his wife Sheila Blair from Boston College are uh, both authorities at Islamic paper and Islamic calligraphy, respectively. It was very interesting to sit in a room full of people and and hear both of these two people speak. No images of Islamic art to speak of, uh, not a whole lot of discussion about Islamic culture, but everybody was rapt you know, <laughs> just hearing about this paper because not a lot is known yeah. about Islamic uh, papermaking and calligraphy. I mean, we're, we're starting to put things together. A lot of my students are interested in trying to recreate some of these papers because that kind of activity is helpful to scholars wow. who are trying to date and place mm-hmm. Islamic manuscripts. So it was uh, very exciting.
0: And what would be the the reason to try to recreate a paper that... uh...
9: Well, you know, other than the scholarly interest from... I've always been driven by uh, a fascination with aesthetics and handmade paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some great European papers and there's some great Japanese papers, but uh, the best of these Islamic sheets are thin and uh, white. They have this gorgeous luster. They're highly burnished. They're unlike anything you see coming out of Europe or uh, Asia, and they're just, uh, they're just beautiful. So finding out how they were made mm-hmm. uh, is of interest for uh, students of mine interested in the history and technique, but they're also interested in making mm-hmm. art, um, contemporary artist books or contemporary calligraphy that mm-hmm. embodies that same kind of presence. Yeah. So you just have to get in there and... And, you know, it's very interesting, because Jonathan Bloom, he knows Islamic papermaking backwards and forwards, but when he had a chance to try to make a sheet, he couldn't do it, you know? So that, and, and I don't, it's not meant disrespectfully, because he knows the history of Islamic papermaking far better than I do, so we're trying to plan conferences now that will bring together uh, artisans with scholars, with conservators of these kinds of materials, because when you have those those specialties together, mm-hmm. you can make discoveries that no one alone could possibly make. Yeah. It's very exciting.
0: Well, when we were talking before, as we were planning this program, um, I wanted to, to talk just a little bit about what books have meant to various cultures. We've we've done that throughout all segments of this program, but um, just looking at the history of the book, uh, you said you might like to mention what happened uh, in Central America when the Spanish conquistadors
9: Yeah, well, this is something I I don't know a lot about. In fact, everything I'm about to tell you is based on a book published in 1947 by Wolfgang von Hagen called Aztec and Mayan Papermakers. And he was very interested in the techniques and materials used to make uh, these Aztec and Mayan codices. And that's the majority of the treatment in the book. But early on, he gives an amazing picture of the arrival of the Spanish, and how rich Aztec and Mayan culture was at the time. And in particular, how many books these people had, libraries. And the tragedy is that the Spanish came in, and first there was a military conquest. And then the priests came in. And they found these books and they heaped them up in giant piles and they burned them all. There's only, you can count on uh, two hands the number of these codices that are, that are left. And it's like a national archives being, being consumed. And uh, contemporary witnesses speak about how the Indians were filled with sorrow to see their books burned. Mm -hmm. The story, what makes it compelling to me is, you know, I feel like books are humanity's celebration of itself. And any time a book is burned, and this has happened, as we all know, many times through history, Mm -hmm. it's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. But if it's a tragedy when a book is burned, that means every time a book is made, it's it's, it's a moment for joy. And so that's the important thing to remember. Anytime a a Native American tribe comes up with a syllabary, it's a moment for joy. So it's the flip side of the book-burning story that, Mm -hmm. you know, occasionally these things are found, and when they're found, they're such incredible treasures. Uh, Really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, Paul, um, in addition to this particular work you're doing on the Codex, you you work in this um, field of sort of ancient early Christian times, right? That's Uh your specialty research area. What are the other texts, or you have mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls, but but what are the other early documents that someone like you would study?
3: Well, the Gnostic Gospels Mm -hmm. are probably a bit more famous. Well, I know they're more famous than the Manichaean (laughs) texts. Uh, They are similarly, though, uh, you know, books which were eventually thought to be heretical, so a bit too much Greek philosophy, a little Mm -hmm. bit too much uh, wild mythological speculation, uh, some fairly shocking rewritings of biblical traditions. So, Eating the tree of knowledge is actually, uh, you know, a positive step towards salvation and the creator God being uh, Mm -hmm. evil in Mm -hmm. some sense. So uh, these sort of texts have been uh, discovered uh, in various places time and again. The Gospel of Judas, which was discovered about, well, it came on the market it uh, was finally published about seven years ago, uh, basically by happenstance, uh, lucky discoveries. And when they are discovered, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they escaped the flames of, uh, mm-hmm. of the uh, Christian Roman Empire, which, I mean, the, uh, the laws were actually to burn heretical books. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they were hidden, or uh, for whatever reason, they escaped. And when they do get rediscovered, there's the opportunity to publish them and study them and to understand them out of the only other context in which we knew about them, which was sort of polemical attacks on them, which mm-hmm. don't uh, really give the full story. So there's always that mm-hmm. opportunity of uh, recuperating or restoring a loss of voice, if you will. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. And it is, uh, you know, i study studied the Gnostic Gospels, uh, you know, now as one of many scholars who have been studying them for over 40 years, and the interesting thing about studying this Manichaean codex, which hasn't been published yet, is that you really do feel like you know, you're staring at this thing which uh, has been hidden for over a millennium, yeah. and all of this uh, you know, treasures of knowledge in there waiting to come out. So yeah, I guess I really do feel like it is opening up a treasure box.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well. let's just um, conclude the talk with uh, some conversation about the age we're in right now, where um, books are still being printed, books are still, of course, very important in our daily life, but we're in such a digital era. Um, what about the permanence of the things that are being said and recorded and produced today, uh, recorded sort of digitally, but not on paper?
9: Well, I think, you know, I, I may have mentioned this in an earlier show, so forgive me if I did, but uh, Gary Frost, uh, book conservator emeritus here in, uh, at the university, he has a wonderful tabletop display. It consists of a, a, a facsimile clay jar, like the jar that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found sure. in, and a couple of early, uh, very early models of early bound books. And he's got a little jar of sand that he puts out on the table too, and that sits on the table right next to an iPad and an iPhone and a laptop computer. <laughs> and he says, "Which is the most advanced technology from the standpoint of proven long-term reader access? <laughs> you know, just what you're looking at. It's like it, 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 the point being: I love my iPhone. I love my MacBook Pro. I wouldn't." trade them for anything hardly. I don't, I, I, I don't read a whole lot of paper-based books. But when we get that big solar flare, and the internet goes down, and the cloud with all your stuff on it disappears, you can go climb into your tent, and get your copy of Huckleberry Finn, and come sit next to me at the campfire mm-hmm. and read to me. And that has always been true, and it will always be true in the future. I, I just, you know, we're, we're going to need those paper backups. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but your story is a wonderful example of how important these original artifacts can be and how they can you know, transmit human culture through history mm-hmm. over the millennia. It's, it's just incredible.
0: You know, there's a there's a movie from many years ago, not a terrific movie, but um, it was called Rollerball, and it was a futuristic movie, and there's a moment in it where um, James Conn is the main character, and he's gone to this place and I think, Geneva, which is the world library repository. It's the one place in the world that is the repository for books, and he's going up the stairs, and he bumps into a very confused Ralph Richardson, and, you know, he's asking him for directions or something, and Ralph Richardson is just all discombobulated, and, and he says, "Well, you know, is, is anything? wrong? Can I help you? And he says, no, uh, we've lost the 13th century. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's it. The, yeah. uh, a, a whole history gone. If, yeah. if we, you know, if we burn our books or we don't treasure them wherever they are, yeah. it's, it's a scary thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's next for you?
3: Well, uh, I have a number of projects that I'm working on. I mean, one, potential tie-in would be looking at the collection of the Quran, so Ooh, stories yeah, about yeah. Uh, Hadith traditions, about uh, you know when the various uh, surahs were collected and, and put together, and just looking at, in particular, um, the impetus behind that, various models for doing it, and uh, in particular, not a lot of work has been done on, uh, was it a codex, so was the first Quran, where the first mm-hmm. Quran is uh, the, the codex form. And it's striking that not a lot of work has been done in this area because uh, in the study of uh, early Christianity, it's sort of uh, a major event. It's almost the codex is almost seen as like a new medium mm-hmm. uh, for the early church. So I'm, I'm curious as to uh, what, uh, what we can learn about early Islam as well.
0: Yeah, terrific. And, and Tim, uh, what are you working on?
9: Well, we're, my students and I are, as I said earlier, I've always been fascinated with aesthetics in handmade paper. I'm particularly interested in Italian and German 15th century papers. They're in great condition, but they also have a kind of character and authenticity and spontaneity and integrity that we don't see in modern handmade papers. I've decided part of it comes from the fact that they produced a lot of this stuff in a given day. A team of three people could make 1,500 or 2,000 sheets in a day. They had to work in a three-person team to do it. Mm -hmm. So we've set up this three-person team (laughs) to see if we can make that much paper in one day. It was done routinely through the history of the craft in Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, we ran out of pulp before we can make that many sheets in one day. But in three hours, we can make 100 or 200 sheets in an hour. And it's it's been interesting. Because when you make it that fast, you get little aesthetic touches, marks of the hand and stuff that you don't get if you try to make a piece of paper really carefully. So Mm -hmm. that's what we're working on
0: right now. Sounds great. So, uh, Tim Barrett from the UI Center for the book, thank you. And Paul Dilly from the Department of Religious Studies and also thank Classics, thank you very much. Thanks to all of you for joining us tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the program as much as I have. And um, that's it for World Canvas tonight. Our next program is in this room on April 5th, uh, Refugees in the Heartland, and I hope you can join us. I'd like to say thank you to our partners, UITV, the Pentecost Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. And uh, I guess that's it for tonight. I want to say thanks to my staff international programs wonderful colleagues caitlin mcbride connie Shea, Shayna ole lauren katalinich and christopher clough and thanks to rod mickle ben hill and ui tv for making the broadcast possible so thanks very much good night and see you next time